Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, being in the middle of an exciting workshop of uh, astrology, I still decided for last week and for this week to continue with the satsangs, even if I'm going to make a bit of a shorter satsang, <clears throat> because here in Kopangan it's 9.30 almost already. I said that even if I'm talking for one hour, uh, an hour and a quarter or something, we'll see how much uh, it goes. I would like to continue presenting the teachings which come from the actions and sayings of Jesus as contained in the Gospel of Luke. This season has been the season of Jesus, has been the season of the Luke's Gospel. And uh, last week, in the last satsang, I was reading that some parables of Jesus, including the one with a narrow door, where he can notice very clearly that although he is doing amazing things, and although he is doing them in, in, a right, in the right way, in a beautiful way, nevertheless, people don't understand. People, it's true, the message of Jesus is very revolutionary. You know, he wants people to jump directly to the heart chakra, when everybody, if they would be successful, like in the capitalistic society, they would try to go to Manipura. That's where the success of the egoistic man, of the fulfilled, powerful man is. And Jesus is asking people constantly to go above their ego, to go not in selfishness, but in selflessness in the heart chakra, first of all, and then more. So, of course, his message is difficult. It's demanding. It's not what you would expect. It's a bit counterintuitive when somebody is telling you, if somebody is asking for your shirt, give him your coat as well and forgive those who harm you and all those advices which you know very well. It's like it's so difficult and that's not how things are happening in the daily life and uh, why should I do that and how far should I go with this or that. And that's why, uh, of course, it is understandable that Jesus comes to the Jewish society, which was partly prepared for the big thing happening to them, that this man came from heaven, sent for them, first of all, and uh, they don't recognize him. And Jesus is very often getting bitter. And in this narrow door parable, he tells them, you know, you are going to see the prophets of your in heaven and you are not received there. And you are going to say, yeah, but uh, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And uh, he will reply, which is he himself, I don't know you or where you come from, away from me, all your evildoers. It's very uncompromising. It's very like Jesus is telling them, this is a, like a node in history. It's a crossroad in history. When we reach to this point, you really have to make up your mind. There is no ambiguity. It's black or white. Here, you cannot go to the left and to the right at the same time. It's a crossroad, and you have to decide clearly. Now I turn left, or now I turn right. So, it's a very special moment, very testing very demanding for many people. And uh, he simply say, he simply warns the Jewish people 
that their statute in the Western, in the Mediterranean culture, where they were the only people in Europe and in the Mediterranean and in Africa and in the Near East who were monotheistic and therefore chosen by God, he tells them in the end, which I read then, people will come from East and West and North and South and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, and there they preach the message of Jesus. Suddenly Rome and the Roman Empire, to a large extent, became very Christian. So there are people who went to Jesus, who are belonging to geographical areas about which the Jews, the traditional Jews, they didn't care a bit. People from Greece, people from Spain, people from Italy, people from France and other countries which were included in the Roman Empire, they became very Christian and they served the new covenant. They had the new covenant with God, the new deal. A new covenant was being done and these people had the chance to be the first ones in it and they just gave away that chance. They said, nah, nah, this is not uh, the thing which we want to deal with. Now let's continue to see what further happened. At the, that time, some Pharisees, remember the Pharisees were one of the sects, and the Pharisees and the Zealots and others, uh, they were the, the, the learned people, the, the scholars, they were the leading people who seemed to be the most faithful, the most religious, the most kosher, the most holy, the most kadosh in all this Jewish culture of that time. And Jesus is always uh, punishing them. He's always whipping them because he says, you have taken the place of honor. You are enjoying social honors. And actually, in a certain way, you don't deserve it. And you are abusing it. So the Pharisees told him, came to him, and they told him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Either they were uh, with social conformism. It's exactly like you take uh, some of the big Samizdat authors of Russia or of the communist times and tell them, uh, like Solzhenitsyn or others, you know, and tell them you should not write, you should not uh, make a critique of the system because they are going to kill you. They are going to send you to a concentration camp. They are, you know, but brave people, they would do it anyway. So they come to Jesus and they try to discourage him. They say, leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. you know, that's a cheap way of turning him off, of telling him, now nah, you should be afraid like all of us. You should be making compromises. You should, you know, Herod wants to kill you. Either they really meant it, that they cared. But remember, John the Baptist had been killed not long time ago. That Herod, he was a killer. He was a nasty king. Very now, Jesus had become prominent and Herod was having a grudge against this one also. Or they were simply using Herod like a scarecrow. <clears throat> they were using uh, Herod like a scarecrow because actually they wanted him, reduced him to silence. He was uh, unpleasant to them 
and they were using Herod like the like the boogeyman. Yeah, yeah, you know Herod will sooner or later get to you. You better get out of here. No, like he was not well received in his own land. Some people did, but many other people, and especially the upper classes, the 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 ones with some uh, expectations, they did not. And he replied, Jesus. Then they told him about Herod. Was it true that Herod actually, because eventually it was not Herod who had the main role to play. It was the Sanhedrin, the Holy Council, with the high priest Caiaphas and the Roman procurator. Actually, Herod had a secondary, completely secondary role to play in this. They sent Jesus, like, what about, what do we do with this man? And Herod, uh, he simply said, no, no, take him to the... Pontius Pilate and so on, it's not my job, I don't have any authority, administrative authority here, you guys decide and so on. Like, of course, he didn't like Jesus, most probably, but nevertheless, he was not having the main role in the tragedy that followed. And that's why maybe Herod was indeed having Jesus on the blacklist, maybe Herod was having Jesus on the blacklist, but he was not going to do anything anyway, and they just used him to scare Jesus, to try to scare Jesus. And Jesus replied, go tell that fox, he calls Herod a fox, he said, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. He already makes these allusions to his famous resurrection. He says, I will do this on day one and two, which is like the human part of what he is doing. And then he says, on the third day, I will reach my goal. His goal is not a human goal. His goal is the fact that God personally interferes in the game and produces the phenomenon of resurrection. And that's why here he talks analogously. He talks directly and in parables because he says, I will continue driving out demons and healing people. That's what he was doing most of the time. No? And he says, then I will reach my goal. That those who have to believe will believe. Those who have seen enough will acknowledge. And, you know, and so he calls him a fox. He says, you are sitting out there in a palace and you are giving directives. But you never invited me, Jesus, to come for three days and stay in your palace and talk to you. No, simply said, I, Herod, want to understand who you are and what you do. I cannot come on the fields with all those people. Please come to my palace. You will be my guest. If you would have done that invitation respectfully and humbly, it is very possible that Jesus, together with the ten disciples or so, would have gone and visited him for three days. And maybe the heart of this man would have been open. But Jesus calls him a fox. No, because this man never even tried. He may have pretended or something, but never even tried. It was all hypocrisy, and Jesus didn't like at all this hypocrisy of the priests, aristocrats, and high-class people who are constantly pretending to be with God. So Jesus says, go tell that folks, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, which are symbolic, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. The third day is the day of the resurrection, is the day of divinization, is the day where he becomes divine. In any case, 
I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. He basically makes a direct allusion, knowing he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I have to die in Jerusalem. And, you know, in Jerusalem, he pushed the envelope quite a bit, quite a bit. You know, so he was like looking for it. It was black and white. I'm, I'm stepping on it. I'm flooring it. And either they come with me and this will be the kingdom of heaven right now. Or if not, they are going to punish me, kill me. But he identifies with the prophets. He says, and I will go on with the next day, the third day, the day when he's dead and resurrected. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Actually, some prophets did die outside of Jerusalem. But, uh, you know, he's like putting, setting there some, uh, he identifies with the projects, with the prophets of yore. And then he takes his normal stance. He accuses, he points fingers. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her, her wings, but you were not willing. He talks like God, like suddenly he talks and it's from a prophecy, it's from the Psalms and from... Uh, and, and basically he quotes the Psalms, he quotes the voice of God and he talks like he's God. Who says this? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. No, only God can say that. I wanted to gather all the children of Jerusalem together, of Israel together. It's the wish of God. It is the way God would have wanted to have it in a perfect world. And he says, but you were not willing. There was no oneness. This ego, this terrible ego is making people say, yeah, but what about me? But I want that. But my agenda is different. And no, like nobody can just sit together and find a common way of doing. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a traditional uh, signature, uh, Judaic salutation. Many prophets have said this, and Jesus himself was greeted often like, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But basically, here he tells about a conclusion. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. What's the house? It's the house of God. It's the temple. So Jesus here says something which is very politically incorrect and one should not try to interpret it too much because he's saying if God came to the Jewish temple and he was chased away, then God is not in the Jewish temple anymore for until the people are coming back to Jesus. And he says, you will not see me again. As I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and that's Jesus. So Jesus gives a sort of historical thread which says until those Jewish people will not say actually Jesus was the Messiah 
and he came in the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter. Some of our ancestors 2,000 years ago couldn't see him, couldn't recognize him, couldn't accept him. Today, there are many Jews who go in the direction of Jesus organizations like Jews for Jesus and others. <laughs> this tendency exists. It's not completely in the Jewish society, but it does exist to a large extent. And thus, Jesus... Here you can simply say, oh, he was a minor prophet who made some crazy mistakes as well, maybe. Yeah. In the view of Jesus, he was God. God was talking through his mouth. He said, I and my father are one and the same, which is total monism. And then he says, I tell you, look, your house is left to you desolate, an empty house. Like today... Many Jewish people say, oh, if we could rebuild the Temple of Solomon, which was raised down like the history of the Jews, continued very bitterly because 35 years later, the Romans simply raised the Temple down because they got annoyed with too much resistance and political struggle and uh, rebellions and so on. And they simply said, punish these guys, raise this city down to the ground. You know, we are fed up with this. And uh, it, it was there. But Jesus says this temple, which will stand for another 35 years, it will be empty. It's desolate. It's, a, it's just bricks. You know? And then if some Jew says, oh, let's rebuild the temple. They rebuild it. And who's in it? Nothing. No one is in it. No? And therefore, here we are talking about something very strange, a very radical historical prophecy, which Jesus says. He says, I tell you. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what people were telling to him. So he says, until the Jews will say, that man Jesus was the God, blessed be him because he came in the name of the Lord. You will not see me again. That's, that's a spiritual karma. It's a sort of a divine decision, which is... Terrible. No? So then it arises lots of questions which I don't want to bring in a satsang like this, but then you can think about, uh, you know, how did things go on in many ways. And we're getting back to the favorite story with the Sabbath and the kosher rules and so on. The story goes on one Sabbath, so it's another circumstance, one Sabbath. When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. They always watched him because on one hand, these people were high religious people. And there was somebody who said that he was the Messiah, a prophet. Somebody who could see God, hear God, talk to God, communicate and be God. And of course, you'd watch him carefully. No, because maybe, maybe my heart is opening. Maybe my mind is opening. Maybe I see something. Maybe I'll be convinced. Maybe on the contrary, I'll catch this imposter red-handed and I'll say, come on, man, God would never do anything like this. Now you expose yourself, you know. Like, of course, they were watching every one of his moves to try to see, is this man a blasphemer? Is he crazy? Is he just a megalomanic schizophrenic, something. You know, what is he? There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. 
that's a disease, right? Or sort of a swelling disease. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. They remained silent because on one hand, healing is a divine thing. So why shouldn't the, the work of God be done on the Sabbath day? But on the other hand, if healing is done by a doctor, if healing is done with materialistic means, chemicals and you know other things, massage and so on, then the traditional Jews would say, you know, but why couldn't you wait until Sunday or Monday to do that? Why on the Sabbath? You know, this man was not dying of dropsy then. He had waited for 10 years with his terrible disease. He could wait for another day or two. So it's not really like this thing that Jesus said. Jesus could have said to this man, brother, man, visit me tomorrow and we'll deal with your dropsy. And of course, the man would have come if he had hope that something good would happen. And if he didn't come, then he was an idiot and he was refusing a divine offer. But Jesus is doing it on the Sabbath day because it's intervention of God. It's like calling upon God. So for him, this is divine work. He's not just a healer. He's not just a doctor. He wants to show this dimension. So he asks and they are, you know, they would say, well, if you do it strictly by praying to God, okay, go ahead, do it on Sabbath. But if you do it by giving him peppermint tea or something like this, then please refrain. Postpone it till tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, you know, and then you can do it. Why, why do you need to do it today? We are eating. It's a Sabbath day. We are eating. We are having a religious meeting, you and a lot of Pharisees and so on. And now you want to interfere with this thing with a healing. Why can't it wait until tomorrow? But Jesus is doing healing not like a tubib, you know, not like a daktari, not like a medicine man. Jesus is doing the healing strictly with God. So for he wants to show this dimension. So they remained silent because they knew it was a deadlock question. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Dropsy, it's a pretty visible and ugly thing, you know, to heal dropsy. How did he heal? Like it's a very spectacular event, which is mentioned with a sleight of hand. So Jesus right there and then in their house, he healed him to the point where he could send him away. Then he asked them. He constantly wants to make this point that these rules have blinded people to such an extent where people live for the rules and not the rules are made for the emancipation of the human beings. It's one of his favorite themes. He repeats this at least 10 times in 10 stories in the Bible. If one of you has a son or an ox, yeah, it depends, yeah, uh, in, instead of an ox or something, some, he says a donkey in some uh, forms of the manuscript, you know, So he says, if you have a donkey or a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? Like, sure, as soon as the emergency surpasses a certain level, it's with life and death of a member of your family, then who is looking that it's Sabbath? You have to do it anyway. Especially if it's an accident, you cannot say, oh, let him stay in the well for 24 hours. We'll sort him out tomorrow when it's not Sabbath. It's not possible. 
So he says, if some, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. It was very difficult to argue with Jesus. We do not find any time in the gospel where somebody was able to beat Jesus in arguments. It's true that sometimes Jesus answered out of rhythm. Like they asked him something and he answered something slightly different. It's true that he sometimes answered in parables and talking obliquely. It's true that sometimes Jesus just asked in a provocative and almost aggressive way. It's true that the answers of Jesus were very strong, you know, but nobody beat him in arguments. There was nobody who spoke with Jesus for one hour and then Jesus says, yeah, you know, you are right in your own way. Now, what can I tell you? No, it's like, if you don't believe this and if you don't believe... No, he always had the last word, always, which meant the truth was with him. He even said, I am the truth, the life and the way. Even when they brought him a woman that was to be punished by stoning to death because she was an adulteress, Jesus found a way. The genius of God found the one loophole or one of the possible loopholes in that situation. And as you remember, he told them, okay, she can be stoned according to your law, but let the one who is pure stone her. Those who have no sins, they should cast the first stone. And then in that light, in that clarity, everybody realized, who am I to raise my hand against this woman? Yes, she is a whore, but I am also a liar. I am also a glutton. I am also a greedy person. I am also a... God knows what. Everybody has done lots of things. And therefore, uh, Jesus found Jesus. You could not beat Jesus with words. Jesus had the power of the word of a complete clarity. He had this. He is even called in the Gospel of John that he was the Logos. He was the word of God. Jesus was the word. So how can you beat the word in arguments? There was not one philosopher and one theologian in the whole of Israel or of the world who could have beaten Jesus in argumentation. In argumentation, in theology, Jesus was always with God and he always had, he was right always. So these people, they had nothing to say. Like, what can you say? And more, moreover, he just healed a man with dropsy right in front of you, right there, and sent him home. What can you say? Can you nag and say, yeah, but I think you are just a demonic person. You just spoiled our Sabbath day here. That's still not what you are supposed to do. It's like, you know, it's very difficult. People were ashamed. Jesus was waking up in them a certain consciousness, a certain conscience, and people were like, mm, you know, when we are with you, we cannot say much. You know, it's not when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. He told them this parable, you know, with the Phariseans and with this, this aristocratic and higher class, richer people and so on. He was always annoyed by their ego. Jesus was constantly provoked by people's ego. A guru that is trying to destroy people's ego is always very provoked precisely when he sees people going in the opposite direction. You know, Like, I'm trying to get the world to be more humble, more loving, 
more selfless. And these people, even in my presence, they were at a party and people were coming and somebody important came and they said, oh, let Oscar, let the rabbi sit in the right place. Oh, give him that place. You know, like it was all about respect and formalities and social politeness and all this hypocrisy, you know. Jesus, you know, he washed the feet of his apostles. He served a lot, you know. And it's like he didn't want. He, he was irritated naturally. I can feel that irritation, you know, that he was irritated by the fact that people are always uh, pampering themselves, always honoring themselves, you know. I deserve to have the best place because I'm the most important member of the community. What would happen if the most important member of the community would just come and sit humbly in a corner there, you know? And maybe the others will notice and say, sir, you cannot sit here. Let us give you a chair. And you say, no, no, no. I'm comfortable. It's okay. Tonight, it's okay. You know, like at least once in a while to practice some humbleness or something. And he tells them one, a parable, obliquely talking to them. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. Like in, in modern meetings, usually the place of honor is when somebody is staying at the end of the table, at the long end of the table, you know, because they, they are like Jesus. You can see everybody. You are in the middle of the attention, the most visible. So I don't know exactly which the places of honor were, if they had round tables or square tables or rectangular tables or whatever. It doesn't matter. There were places of honor, you know, according to people's definition. Probably the place where you are the most visible, probably the place from where everybody can see you and hear you, and stuff like that. And he says, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. So he simply says, if you put yourself up, you will fall, and the fall will feel worse. No? Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. Like, you know, if you could be humiliated and say, hey, I'm glad I have been humiliated today because it was such a lesson for me, then you'd be a saint. Then you'd be a great mystic. But normal people are very, very sensitive about being insulted and uh, humiliated. You know, and the pride and the arrogance is one of the worst things plaguing the human being. But he says, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host come, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Nietzsche said God is dead because people don't believe that there is a justice. People don't believe that there is a living divine presence. People don't believe there is an authority. People don't believe there is somebody who will do justice in the end. And that's why people have fallen in this trap of the ego where you are all the time like, take everything you can. You take everything you can now because you don't know if the world is going to give it to you. He who doesn't take it by himself, the world tramples on him. Jesus says, have you forgotten? There is God. And God will always make things right. But sometimes you need to be patient. Sometimes you need to be very patient. 
maybe 10 years will pass before things start getting right. But why shouldn't you wait? If God wants to test you, if you resist for 10 years, then he will. You know, the story which came subsequently, Paul, the future Paul, called in that day Saul, the apostle of the future apostle of Christ, he got converted. He had this vision on the road to Damascus. He got converted to Christianity. He became a servant of Jesus. He was baptized by Peter personally. He became one of the, he was very hot with the desire to speak about Jesus because he had the experience of seeing Jesus in his vision. And I don't know if you know this story, that he was a very hot potato. They were looking for him. He had provoked the Sanhedrin, the high priest and so on. And they sent him to Jaffa or to Tyr, to Sidon, to one of the Jewish cities on the coast of the Mediterranean, like 80 kilometers away from Jerusalem, which was a big enough distance in those days. And they sent him to a Christian from that time who was making nets, fisherman nets, a man who had a workshop of nets. And there, Saul learned how to make nets, because what should he do all day long? He should serve to earn his bread. No? So he should work, and in that, the work was to make nets. So he was an apprentice, he was a servant, he was a worker in making nets. And you know for how many years didn't he hear again from the apostles before they told him, now you can go do whatever? giving him a green light for 80 years. Can you imagine to have a state of samadhi and the vision of Jesus, to be baptized by Peter, to be in the hotbed of that, and then not to go and preach when you are a Manipuristic Roman Jewish citizen and so on. And he wanted to make a difference and he wanted to repent because he had killed people just because they were Christian and all that. And now he was there hot, ready to run. I have to, if I die before I repent, I'm going to die in sin or something. I have to do something to clear my karma. And he had to wait eight years. Most of you haven't done yoga, not even for two, three years. And you don't know what it means to wait. Doing fisherman nets, not doing preaching of Jesus. He had to stay quiet like a simple worker in a workshop for eight years. And after eight, that's why I'm saying, <coughs> people say, when will God make justice? Whenever it pleases him. Not when it pleases you. Not when it pleases your ego. Justice will be done in its own time, in its own way. No? And therefore, it simply says, wait. That waiting is a test of humbleness. That wasting, that waiting, like Jesus. Why didn't God resurrect him three hours after he died? Okay, he died at six o'clock. They put him in a tomb. And then three hours later at nine o'clock or ten o'clock, the angel came and God said, enough is enough. No, there was one more night. Only not Friday to Saturday, but only Saturday to Sunday. Then Archangel Michael came. And the resurrection happened. Why did God wait for one day and a half? Like the point was made. Jesus died on the cross. He humiliated himself. He did whatever. He did whatever. Like okay. Wasn't the test finished? No. No. God was a very very thorough examiner. God was a very tough examiner. He said not only that he should die. 
he should just wait and drift down. Let's see how long he does he resist to that. And when that test was passed, then God said, I'm satisfied. Enough is enough. Now we move. And bang, it happened. But it had to wait. So people say, no, let, I will take the best place because nobody will give it to me if I don't take it. That's lack of faith. That you believe that God is dead. You believe that God is just a metaphor. That people talk about God. But God is not alive. God is not here. God doesn't have the power. to. Do. God is here. Now, God has the power to do anything he wants. Omnipotent. Omniscient. Omnipresent. And if he doesn't do it, then why doesn't he uh, fulfill me? Because you are not important enough. Because you are not humble enough. Because you have to be tested a little bit more. Because you are too vanitous, pride and arrogant. And God feels like crushing you under his thumb a little bit more. Until you will sincerely surrender. When your Ishvara Pranidana will be complete and tested. Then God will love you like a mother loves her baby. God will be with you all the time. But not as long as you have things to sort out there. Then you still have tests to pass. Sometimes even spiritual people have to be tested in some of their spiritual things. And that's why he says, when you are invited, take the lowest place. Because God will restore the order. So when the host, who could be equated to God, comes, he will say to you, but friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. God has this, and Jesus has it, as you can see. And I have seen it on many gurus. As soon as you play with a powerful ego, they will try to put you down. And of course, some gurus might succeed or not. But believe me, God will succeed always. That's why it's the best thing not to exalt you. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You see it in the way of talking of people. The Thais practice this Buddhist humbleness and they speak in a low tone of voice, humble and not threatening. And always they consider that the foreigners, the Manipuristic Americans, the Manipuristic Russians and others, that they are very loud and very shameless and very gross and very brutal. In the Thai society, in public, it's one of the worst offenses that you speak loud. I always can recognize Americans when they speak because they want to make themselves heard. You have to be loud at all costs because maybe you give some important reply and your very important reply is not going to be heard or considered, you know. You can't afford not to be heard. When you speak people, and then people speak like that, and they, add, they add overtones. They use this Donald Duck type of voice. What are you doing? Like, this is an overtone thing which scratches people's ear. Because you have to be heard when you are in high school and all the classes say, you know, like you have to be heard, you know. And this is lack of humbleness because you are afraid that God will not restore the situation. And then you exalt yourself. Hey, I have to talk in a way to be heard. 
He who exalts himself shall be humble. It shall be humble. These countries which cultivate imperialism and na 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 na, you know, they want to be. They are loud and so on. They have a heart. They have a karma of being humble sooner or later. And that's why Jesus says, "Don't don't you exalt yourself. Let others do. And he who humbles himself will be exalted." Jesus says it's better to start from the worst case scenario and then go better and better than to try to put yourself into the best thing and to discover it was not working that way. Rather than being disappointed, you better be fulfilled later. But for this, you need to have this surrender of your ego. Now I don't live my life to please my ego. I live my life to surrender to God. And if I'm worth anything, God will exalt me. And if I'm not worth anything, then it means I belong to a very humble place. It's better like this than to say I can, I will exalt myself anyway. And if I don't belong there, maybe God will take me down. It doesn't work like that. Jesus advises the other path. That's the narrow path. It's a very good and beautiful parable. I don't know more than 10% of the people who came to be my disciples in time who would apply this one. Everybody all the time wants to exalt themselves. Me, 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 but what about me? Do you listen to me? Do you see me? What about this? What? Everybody wants to be important and to push themselves forward. And there are some people who just go in a corner and they say, no, no, if nobody sees me, no. And then they become seen. Believe me. Because when people have value, especially when people are spiritual and humble, the divine consciousness sees them and exalts them. But it has to come as a gift. It's a sort of external verification. Am I a megalomanic, selfish person who thinks about myself that I am the most important person in the world? Or does God actually think the same thing? You know what? I will verify. I will stay in a humble position until you know, one day you find yourself pushed in, the, in a certain position. And then you say, you know, it's like I did not elbow my way into it. I just patiently waited and did my thing. And then I found myself in this position or in that position. That is a very important attitude of rather being humble because being arrogant and pushing yourself doesn't bode well. It doesn't bode well, believe me. It, it simply says that you are exalting yourself and you will be lowered by the divine consciousness, by the divine force. Then Jesus said to his host, another parable which is still about these kinds of things. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. Like simply says, sometimes people are very superficial and they want payment horizontally. I give you food, you give me food. I give you attention, you give me attention. I give you respect, you give me respect. 
Then Jesus says, the law of karma is fulfilled. You gave him a dinner, he gave you a dinner. You gave him an excellent dinner, he gave you an excellent dinner. But this is just egoistic. You, it's exactly like you gave yourself two excellent dinners. You know, it's just I give you so that you give me. But Jesus says the principle of karma yoga. Give up the fruits of action. Do something which is good, even when you know you will not receive anything in exchange. Do it anyway. So he says, otherwise you are repaid. And then what, what glory will come from that? What divine thing? Nothing. It's ping pong, ping pong, ping pong. There is nothing else. But then he says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus says, why don't you want to make good things which will be your future karma, not now immediate repayment. Make things which make merit. That's what's called in Thailand to make merit. To do acts from which you don't directly do anything. I want to offer clothes to the monks. That's what one thing which they do in July or something. They offer clothes to the monks. And everybody is buying an orange suit and gives them. And most people do it in very lavish ceremonies. So the whole village can see. You see how many blankets and clothes I gave to those monks? And everybody says, oh, you are such a charitable and religious person. Jesus says you have been paid. There is nothing in heaven for you. You did not gain merit because what you wanted was the appreciation of the other people. But if you want to have merit for a hundred years from now, then you should avoid getting appreciation from people so you keep your virtue. So you keep the power of what you have done. So you give and nobody knows. He says here, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, the miserable, you know. They cannot repay you. They cannot give you food in exchange another time. But then your payment, says Jesus, will come at the resurrection of the righteous. The resurrection of the righteous is the doomsday. It's the end of Kali Yuga. It's the time when the line is drawn and the accounts are made. The, the resurrection of the righteous is even when you die. Even when you die, your guardian angel will calculate with you the good deeds and the bad deeds and then you will say I gave a banquet to those people and the guardian angel will say yes and they gave a banquet back to you so what merit did you get from that it's just some well to do people giving you know exchanging pleasures and fun with others well to do people what is the merit in that I gave clothes to the monks Yes, and the whole village was watching you as you are, uh, look at me, uh, I'm giving clothes to the monks, you know, and they were admiring you and clapping you on the shoulder and they said, you are a great citizen of our community, blah, 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 you know, and then you got paid. There is nothing left for now when you are with the angel. So Jesus says, keep something for the resurrection day, keep something for heaven. Make some deposits in your celestial account. But people say, yeah, 
you are asking me to do charity, you know, and anonymously, discreetly, humbly, and then what do I get out of it? People don't believe that there is karma. People don't believe that there comes a day of judgment. People don't believe that you have an account in heaven. People don't believe that you accumulate merit and that merit means something because they don't see it today. But God sees that you have no faith and that's why he stretches it like with Jesus. No, no, don't resurrect him immediately. What difference would it have made if Jesus would have been resurrected in the first night or two nights after? From God's standpoint, if God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, what difference would they have made? Like, oh no, it's enough is enough. It was not enough. It was not enough. God wanted another 36 hours of Jesus accepting humbly his faith. And he did. And then God said, come on, this guy is really good. You know, it's like, you know, you, you can't, you know, like, Enough is enough. Yes, I'm pleased. I'm satisfied. You know, it's like I am completely full on with this. That's how it is. Remember that sometimes what we expect, oh, I need to be honored. I need to be exalted. I need to be rewarded. I No, you don't. It's all a matter of subtleness of the spirit and making merit there in that place. And here, finally, the, I, I, because finally, because I will not go beyond this, I will go into this one and this will be final. As I do, usually I'll tell you three quarters of it and then I'll come up with one more quarter of this comment next week so that I restart from here. The parable of the great banquet. Then he, he is still in this circumstance and he uses a lot of parables with the banquet. He's very pragmatical in this way. He could have been a Capricorn the body of Jesus born in Capricorn because he was very down to earth and very utilitaristic. See, he's in a banquet and he gives a parable about the wedding feast and he gives a parable about inviting the beggars and the cripples and now he gives the famous parable of the great banquet, which is sounding like this. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, it's not directly because he could have said to Jesus, blessed is the man who is friends with you, my Lord. Blessed is the man who has heard what we have heard today. He could have made an act of devotion, but he's not the Jewish jerk. That Jewish jerk, he's talking obliquely. You know, he said, blessed be the God who eats at the table. Blessed be the man who eats at the table of God. You know, like, we don't know if you are that man. We don't know if this is true. But I can say, you know, like, uh, yes, yes. We don't know if we can say you are he or not. Because you say you are he, but we don't know if we can believe that. Um, the conclusion is clear. Blessed is the man who eats in the kingdom of God at the banquet of God. You know, like that we can agree upon. Jesus knows it's not enough. These people is trying to wind him around the finger, giving him a sort of a neutral, like, a, let's give a win-win uh, end to this. Uh, yes, blessed be the man who goes to God, you know. Um, either you are that man or not, this is still to be seen. 
No, it doesn't really approve Jesus in any way. It just says, I'm also a religious person and I agree with you. Blessed is the man who goes to the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man, because Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking, you know, it's like you're still not uh, accepting me and you are just giving me sophisms, you know, you're just giving me religious generic replies. I'm not uh, looking for a religious confirmation from you that we are on the same page. I'm telling you something much more concrete and so on. So Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servants came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the homes became angry. Remember this parable, he tells it to a Jew because these were the Jews. The Jews were invited to the dinner of God because they were the only monotheistic people there. They are the only people who were aware of the existence of a God above all gods, above all deities. No? And they were invited and they would not come. That's exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes and the learned, the wise people and the other, that's what they were doing. Because Jesus told them repeatedly, you don't go to the kingdom of heaven because you don't do the necessary humbleness practice, opening and everything. And you are being arrogant. You don't allow other people to go as well. So he just said, you know, people make excuses. Like God was inviting. God came and he said, I, Jesus, am God. And the kingdom of God starts now. And they should say, yes, we come to your dinner like this. You know, like when God calls you. But they, they did not. They said, eh, we don't know if this is the right moment. Eh, we don't know if you are that person. Eh, let us think a little bit. You are doing funny things on the Sabbath day and you have a weird reputation. Eh, you know, finding excuses. God is coming to you and knocks at your door and says, now. Wake up. Now is the moment. And you say, nah, it's just a banquet. Uh, later. And then the owner of the house became angry. That's the reaction of God. God says, fuck you. You know, it's like if I'm offering it to you on a silver plate and you don't take it, then it means your spirit is very corrupted. You are very impure. You really have to learn some lessons here. You know, it's a very big test, which is failed spectacularly bad. Spectacularly bad failure is this one. To be given Jesus face to face and to say, not tonight, I'm busy with my oxen or with whatever, I just got married. It doesn't matter. When God calls you, you have to say, yes, Lord. You know, I'm answering immediately. And then God became angry. 
which means God says, huh, you think this planet is not going to work? You think my plan is not going to work just because you guys are playing hard to get? <laughs> I can change this in a second, you know? I can, you know, like he can take an angry decision. That's why, please realize, the anger exists even in God. It's not that anger is doesn't exist in the divine. The divine can get angry. Jesus can get angry. Buddha or Shiva can get angry. Don't underestimate this, like God is forbidden to be angry. No, 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 no. That's what uh, the tolerant people, they say, ah, you can fuck with God as much as you want because he will never get angry. He always loves you. Until that love is coming to perfection, you can see many ups and downs because the anger can be a pedagogic method in which you get spanked before you feel the love and that spanking is given with love from God. Maybe human beings don't manage to punish each other with love. You know, they hang somebody and say, may God have mercy of your soul. You know, like we, the human beings, can do nothing but condemn you to death. And that's it, you know. And that, like it's an acknowledgement of the fact that we cannot do things like Jesus. We cannot do things like God. Only Krishna and Shankaracharya and Milarepa and Rumi can do things like God. Very rare human beings. Those from Shambhala, 100,000 people are at the level where they can do things like God, like Karma Yoga, with consecration, clean. But the others cannot. So God is getting angry and he is okay to get angry. You know? So God, when his offer is refused, he say, wait a second, there's a plan. There's a plan of evolution of this planet. And you think that because you guys are playing hard to get, my plan will not go ahead? My plan will go ahead whatever you do. You know, and if you are playing shenanigans with God, oh my God, you, you are going to see, you know, something very special. So then he ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant. So the angels knew that the master will react like this and they did it already. Like replacements have been found. You understand? If you are not presenting yourself to God, God will replace you in one second without any hesitation because you are not irreplaceable. And that's why it's your interest to be there, to answer immediately. Yes, Lord. Yes, I'm here. Say what you need. Invite me to the dinner. I come to the dinner. You know, it's like, I'm yours. You know? And he said, but the servant said, there is still room. Like Shambhala still could take 10,000 more people. Then the master told his servants, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, no one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Like the food is not going to be wasted. The plan of God is going to be fulfilled. And if it's not with the people who are planned, then with the others. You can say the Jews were the friends and the neighbors. And all the other Gentiles, all the tens of thousands and millions of people who became Christians, some of them were Jewish, 
like Peter and Paul and those, and some of them were not Jewish. And they were considered inferior. They were called goim. They were called like cattle. Oh, we are the chosen ones of God. And those people are a little bit better than animals. You know, they are garbage. Because they don't even understand the idea of God and so on. Can God invite the cripples and the lame and make them sit at his table so that they go to Shambhala and they occupy the kingdom of heaven? Yes. Because God is the master of the souls. God is the supreme magician. God is having the book of life in his hand. God is the Alpha and the Omega. God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. And therefore, God simply says, it's very easy for me to take other souls and purify them quickly, quickly, and put them in this position if these ones are cheating on my trust. I gave them my love and my trust, and now they are playing hard to get with me. You know, will this stop God? No. And that's why this is a very important parable. Because it says you don't know from the very beginning who will go and who will not go. There are people who look very good spiritually and they will not get the great prize. Because they don't respond quickly enough to God, to Shambhala, to the Guru, to whatever is their form of spiritual integration. And other people who are more humble and less prepared, they will say, yes, sure. You know, it's like, I never hope that you will invite me to your banquet. And God simply says, yeah, we prepared it for those people, but I cannot let the food rot on the table. I want this banquet to happen. This feast will happen. And if it doesn't happen with the right people, then it will happen with whoever else happens to be around there because they all have an immortal soul and I can make them all, you know, and they will be probably more grateful and more humble for what has been offered to them. And thus, this was a very important thing. It's valid in yoga. It's valid in any spirituality. How many people look good in yoga and people say that, why, well, you know, and then they fell off the horse they fell off the path. No? And will they ever gain the path? Will any of those people come and say, oh, look, I told you, your servant, I cannot come. But I changed my mind. I, I am actually to come. Please find a little place. The Lord will say, sure. You were invited to start with. Sit there at the table. You know, the invitation is still valid. No. But you cannot play any shenanigans with God. With God, your surrender and your service has to be 100%. That's the famous parable of the banquet. I think we will stop here for now. I'll resume from here and go further with more teachings from Jesus. It is on purpose that this night I said, let's keep it a bit shorter because it's coming after a workshop and for some people it's been many hours. And I hope it still gave you something to think about of some of the teachings of Jesus about humbleness, surrender, service, Ishvara Pranidana, aspiration to God, for God, and other such wonderful things. Thank you all for joining tonight, even for such a short session. And I'll see you again, if everything goes right, next week for the next satsang. With this, we have finished.